0: Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. This podcast is brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. JR, good morning. Good morning, Doug. Always great to see you, brother. Yeah, man. I kind of wish we were doing an episode of the crap in your office, but I mean (laughs) the stuff in your office, but... (laughs) It's been a long time and it just doesn't feel the same when I can't touch it.
1: (laughs) Well, there's, there's always stuff accumulating in my office. I'm not sure if it's worth talking about or not, but sometimes it feels like just stacks of papers
0: and books everywhere. But (laughs) Is that a holy dust bunny I see in the corner? (laughs) Dust bunny. Not sure it's holy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we started something just a few or just last month, we started thinking through quotes and questions. And so um, we'll get into that in just a moment, but with Advent being pretty much full tilt, uh, man, how are you, how have you been experiencing Jesus in this season? Great question. I, you know, using the the elements,
1: you know, hope and peace and, and, uh, joy and, and love, just, uh, just thinking through those. It's been interesting in our house churches to, you know, our house church model that we have in our church with our house church. We've just been talking about, um, you know, people saying, hope, how do you hope in the midst of a year like 2020? How do you find joy in the midst of a year like 2020? How do we find peace in a year that's been so uncertain? So it's been really interesting. I think people are reflecting to a level about Advent more than almost any year uh, in the past. So I'm not, I think there's probably more, there are more questions than answers. And I think that may be part of what, Advent is about. I, you know, we we sing "Silent Night," "Holy Night." You know, like this peaceful, calm thing. But to realize the terror that was happening in Bethlehem uh, around the time of Jesus's birth, right? You've got a tyrant in Herod that lives six miles away in Jerusalem, and uh, all the baby boys under two uh, are murdered. Um, and so, just what is that like for Mary to walk through the market and to see other? Uh, m- you know, moms that she knows through mops, you know, or whatever, uh, <laughs> that, that lost their children, mm. yeah, their sons. Um, I mean, I'm not sure it was a silent night. I'm, you know, it might've been a holy night, but I'm not sure it was a silent night. You know, I mean, babies cry, uh, women in labor scream, um, they're exhausted. So, and it's just kind of returning to kind of the stains, uh, on our hands. When we think about Advent, it's been mm. a little bit dirtier and grittier this year. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a more humane and and human way, uh, so that's that's what's been rolling around in my head during this Advent season. How about you, Doug?
0: Very similar, uh, Jr. for for me too. It it feels like a very real season, and I think uh, having opportunity to reflect while wearing the lenses of 2020 has really been a challenge. I feel like the shepherds uh, t- being terrified of good news coming um and just even realizing that there has just been such a shift in my own soul of seeing this story as very human and i love the way you frame you know the loudness of mothers crying and um you know child child labor is is not a quiet thing but even and even from the perspective of like just noticing the invitation to slow down because we're kind of forced to. I've I've really enjoyed enjoyed that, and um, I think for me specifically, it's been great walking in the mornings and just noticing the sun coming up and life beginning again anew. Uh, I, it just it feels like that. The darkness feels extra dark this year, and the light feels extra bright this year. And I mm. think that contrast is a lot is a lot. Larger, and so yeah, I just I feel like I'm meeting God in the midst of that contrast, in the tension. I I agree. The I feel like I've probably have looked at this, these passages with much more question asking. Than uh, just the nostalgia of what normal Advent may look like from time to time, and so and I've also been engaging um, a couple different Advent reading plans, like the Biola uh, yes. has a great um, great yeah. Advent calendar with art and music. Uh, there's a there was a an album that 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 they had a couple. I think it was the first or second day, but it was this really really fantastic. Um, group called common hymnal. And there was a song in there that just was just exciting. Like it, I noticed my soul leaping off the page as it was, uh, or leaping just off of, out of my chest as I was thinking through like, man, what this implies. So yeah, mm-hmm. I also noticed just his tenderness. I feel like God's been very tender in this season and, and patient and I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. That's great.
1: You know, one thing, even just the last couple of mornings thinking about John the Baptist, uh, I'm not sure we highlight John the Baptist as much as he deserves during Advent, right? I mean, this is a season of preparation. What did John do? He prepared the way. And so I've just been trying to focus more and more on who is John the Baptist and what is his role. And we sort of think of him as this kind of freaky guy who lived out in the wilderness and ate weird things and wore strange clothes. And, you know, it sounds like a hipster. Maybe it was just first century hipster. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but one of the things that struck me is it is why is it that John the Baptist knows who Jesus is and tells Mm. others about him yet he never becomes a disciple of Jesus himself. Ooh. Uh, and so I've just been wondering what implications does this have for us today in our world that he knew maybe more than most people who Jesus was, uh, was it because it was a relative you know, is that kind of a weird family dynamic to be, you know, a disciple to a to a, to a rabbi who's also your cousin? You know, like that's you know. Anyway, yeah. I just have wondered why. He did not actually become one of his disciples.
0: Yeah, so, um, yeah. I love. Is it is it the earliest recorded issue that we have with nepotism where it was actually healthy? <laughs> uh, or, yeah, that's, fascinating. That's, that's a really interesting question.
1: Yeah. So well, oh. I know that. Yeah, you mentioned at the at the top that we've been doing this idea of questions and quotes. Mm. And so, Doug, I'm curious. What are what what's a quote that's been rolling around in your head and your heart uh, recently? You want to share?
0: Yeah. So uh, I I've been reading a lot of David Benner recently. And uh, he started his book with this quote by Thomas Merton. And man, uh, it's just been rattling in my soul. But there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace and my happiness depend. To discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. And I've just been thinking a lot about that over the last few months. Weeks and months, especially in this season, because it, I get this sense of um, there's a lot that's exposed in 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 our in our personhood in this season, like we're in. And I want to find God in those really rough spaces. And so I've just been encouraged by that. I've been I feel like I've been challenged by that, and uh, also I've really seen God show up in some pretty cool ways. So,
1: yeah, that's great. That's How about great. you? Well, I you know. I actually want to read a brief poem and, uh, look, I know two dudes sitting around like reciting poetry may not be, you know, the coolest thing, but, but it's from my favorite American living, uh, poet, uh, by the name of Billy Collins. Billy Collins uh, was actually appointed as the poet laureate of the United States for a couple of years. I think it was 2001 to 2003. Um, but poet laureate, um, so basically our country's greatest poet uh, is basically what that, what that role is. But he's written several that are just zingers. And this is a short one, but it's called Flock. And I think it relates uh, quite well to this idea of uh, the Lamb of God and, and thinking about um, uh, this time of year, this, this season of Advent. But it's called Flock. And uh, at the beginning, Billy Collins says, it has been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible required the skins of 300 sheep. And he said it's from an article on printing. He said, I can see them squeezed into the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike. It would be nearly impossible to count them, and there is no telling which one will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they already know. I just, I find that so, so moving. Uh, so I, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll read it one more time. Cause yeah, I, I've please. always been told by my English, uh, my English teacher growing up, you always read poetry slowly. You always read it aloud and you always read it twice. So Flock by Billy Collins. It has been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible required the skins of 300 sheep. This is from an article on printing. I can see them squeezed into the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike. It would be nearly impossible to count them, and there is no telling which one will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they
0: already knew. Mm. Dang, dude. That's Anyway,
1: yeah, I just... (laughs) I just love Billy Collins. There's so many good ones, but I thought that was appropriate for Advent. So, um, and then the question that I'm thinking through is like, uh, just a very simple one. Am I living out of an overflow model or out of a depletion model? is it a model of overflow or a model of depletion of just saying like ministry is done out of the overflow of what God's doing in my soul and in my life? Or am I just saying I'm so exhausted, I just have to get through today. I just have to do all I can to kind of hang in there because ministry is hard and ministry is tiring. So, um, one is a kind of a scarcity mindset. One is a, is a, an abundance mindset. So yeah. that's a question I've been thinking through that I want to
0: extend to our listeners as well. So That's great. Yeah. The yeah. question I've been thinking through is uh, tell, you know, I've been thinking through this question and, and asking to others, but even as I've been fucking for myself, um, tell your story. Can you tell your story using only the highlights? Mm. And so I think in some ways, very similar, just wanting to wanting to highlight the moments where where I've seen re- like the goodness and the good things uh, you know not to erase the hard stuff but just to to notice the highlights of one story um yeah i, I don't know maybe maybe the follow up question i'll be wrestling with in the next month is can i tell my story with only the low lights yeah and Just fascinating. thinking through how those things really play off one another
1: yeah or is it even possible you know i don't know man i, I, don't I never know. thought about that like you know are all stories stories of highlights and lowlights yeah wow those 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 are those are very thoughtful yeah well we're looking forward to this interview uh coming up here and uh man i think it's gonna be a good one it's our a good one kind of leading in leaning into christmas uh here it may not be christmas related but i think it's a really good one for our pastors to reflect uh kind of going into these next few weeks the last few weeks of the year before we tip into the new year so hope you enjoy this interview And welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. We're really glad you could join us this morning. Thanks, man. It's good to see your smiling faces (laughs) and hear you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know that you and a team of people developed and cultivated this new form, uh, this new expression of church in Tampa called the Underground Network. Um Tell us briefly about the story of the Underground Network and I'm even uh, even the meaning, the origin of the name.
2: I'd be very curious uh, hmm. for you to unpack that a little bit. Man, nobody asked me that. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you know, the Underground did start as a kind of protest, I guess you could say. We, we were frustrated, you know, with um, kind of our experience in the traditional form of church where missionary people, you know, living, doing ministry in the inner city working on college campuses, you know, parachurch, that kind of thing. So, um, I was actually studying. So I, I have two advanced degrees in my second, it was in London. And so I was, I was spending quite a bit of time in London and just kind of blown away by that whole underground train system, mm. you know, the tube and, I wondered if there was a connection to that. Yeah. yeah, And it it like, it's like this city underneath the city. It's like this invisible city that makes that city possible. You know, like London doesn't work without the underground. There's just no way for it to happen, but it's like humble, you know, it's a modest kind of infrastructure. And in some cases it goes really deep. You know, if you've been there, you know, those, those escalators go way the heck down into the earth, you know? Um, just a profound amount of work, but with no, no grandiosity, you know, this city underneath the city. Mm-hmm. And then of course, the name is also a tribute to the underground church in history, you know, which is it's an homage, you know, like the church maybe well, from from our point of view, the church was at its best. You know, when it's persecuted and pressed down and kind of not in hiding, but but also not like, well, Eugene Peterson said the church is at its best when it's a minority, you Mm -hmm. know, when it's kind of speaking the little guy speaking to power. And we don't do as well probably when we're in power, you know, when we're actually given all the all the tools or whatever. So we like that. And, and the story of the underground, you know, in a nutshell is essentially a group of about 50 people that felt that angst and that sense of like, surely there's more, surely we could do this differently or possibly even better. You know, the hubris of youth, you think you could do things better. Um, or at least, let's say it this way, at least we could do it in a way that was consistent with our own conscience and our own discipleship. So if we do make mistakes, at least they could be our mistakes. That's the problem with inheriting a system, isn't it? That you you end up making other people's mistakes, you know, and, you know, and you never, you never agreed to them. You know, you're just sort of stuck in, in them. So at least if we're going to, we're going to do a form of church that was wrong, at least it could be our, our errors, you know, not somebody else's errors. So we, we took off, we, we went to the developing world. We spent almost a year in Manila, Philippines living in the slums and uh, just tried to seek God and learn from Filipinos who were working with the poor mm. To kind of create a different kind of church and the, the manifesto are sort of 18 values, which is the glue that holds the whole community together. The network is essentially held together, not by a vision, but by these values uh, was, was developed there. So born there um, mm. in the midst of that time. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I I guess, practically speaking, it's, it's a decentralized network of micro churches, you know, so people, people need to feel called by God to do something in mission, form community around that calling and around that mission. We call that the church. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we formed an ecclesial entity to support, uh, reinforce, celebrate and serve Mm -hmm. that. Hmm. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's complicated because we had to re-engineer everything, money, governance, leadership, ordination, our relationship to contracts and facilities. And it's, it's like all brand new, you know? So if you, if you start with this bias towards mission Hmm. and towards personal calling, well, then what would the church look like? What, 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 you know, what, how would you do governance, for example? You know, how would you talk about leadership? How would you handle money? Um, what would a budget look like? What would staffing that or serving that look like? It'd be different. So, but, but you know, we had to kind of start from scratch on all those things. But But essentially, that's what it is.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love about uh, the way you think, Brian, are your metaphors and the illustrations you use when you're writing or when you're, you're teaching. And one of the things I, I chuckled when you talked about Netscape Navigator and uh, that, that clunky, really buggy web browser, uh, talk about how you, you know, Netscape Navigator and what is that, how does that relate to church and what you're doing with
2: underground? Well, I just, I just say we're, we're like Netscape Navigator in the sense that uh, you know, in the early days of the internet, Netscape Navigator was the way that you got on the internet. It was one of the one of the few ways you had to access this incredible thing. And you know, it was the HTML whatever portal. Um, but where is that it now? It's gone. Who cares? I mean, it, it, it's a it's a starting point. And now you know whatever Edge Chrome these things they come out of Netscape Navigator. So I don't. I've never said or thought the underground was some sort of empire model to be replicated. Um, It feels more like you break ground and all of a sudden it's something is something different is slightly, slightly different as possible. And that awakens the creativity in, in the, in the field, in the industry, you know, in our case, in the people of God Mm -hmm. and, you know, probably other people are going to do this form of kind of, a dual operating system decentralized with a centralized service platform better than us. And it's going to get, it's going to improve. So I have no interest personally, I have no interest in seeing it replicated, but I have, I have a lot of joy and a lot of hope that it will be improved upon. Mm and one you know we'll have we'll have way better you know versions of it and maybe and maybe the underground as a a thing will just be like a story that we tell that happened a while ago you know and Mm -hmm. it's okay with me too if it doesn't even if it plays its part in history that all sounds really awkward this whole conversation sounds awkward but uh you know it's 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 not that serious none of us is that serious but yeah Netscape Navigator's defunct web browser. That was helpful for a minute. That's how about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Great. (sighs) I think that's really, it, it is really helpful too, but even, even just to have that idea of, you know, the, when you're thinking about missional models and what it looks like to, to, to be church, uh, to do church. Um, I just also appreciate kind of the I guess your posture of like, man, if, if it can be approved upon, this isn't the, we didn't settle on this one thing. Like this is how to do it. This is just what we know the spirit kind of caught us with in the wind. And we've been able to, to take it here. And our hope is that other things move forward. Now, I want to just ask a question more around, like, what does it look like for a, for like your leadership structure? You know, you kind of talked a little bit about how, when you do something like this, my sense is everything There's a lot of unlearning that needs to take place. What are some of the things that you feel like you and your team had to unlearn?
2: Wow. Um, (laughs) Everything. I mean, you you really, you do. I mean, so like our, our sort of middle-class biases, you know, our whatever, you know, the bias toward the pastor teacher, not the apostolic, you know, the missionary person is kind of a crazy uncle, you know, (laughs) trying to bring that person to the center. Honestly, guys, servant leadership, you know, like I I would, I I read a lot. So I've probably read a thousand books on leadership in my lifetime. And most of them promote a leader, a form of leadership, which is like anathema to Jesus, to scripture, you know, he said specifically, the Gentiles lead this way. Not so with you, you guys, you cannot lead like this. And we do, and we have, and I learned, you know, through, through whatever osmosis, a certain way of leading, you know, singular leader at the top, it's lonely. You have to, you have to sort of bear the burden of leadership. You have to You know, you have teams, but you just use those teams for your ends, for a vision that you have, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, sort of great man myth, uh, which has shaped so much of the narrative, the meta narrative, even of what leadership is in America. Um, and this idea of servant leadership, which we, we, we talk about, we, we use that, that construct but it's, it's, it's like not real. It's, it's mm-hmm. people, people, you know, you, our relationship to, to church leaders is often about what, what we're meant to do for them, what we're meant to come in and, and somehow build, be a part of building for them. It's that sort of church's spectacle. You know, I, the, the job of a, of a parishioner is to come and like participate in the programs or the, the budget or the vision of that particular church. And I just think that's a conflation more of culture than it is of probably of scripture. It's not, it's not all terrible or bad. It's not evil necessarily, but you know, that's something we really had to unlearn. Like how, how, how do we, not only we be servants, like at our core, Got like the, the Robert Greenleaf in his like seminal book in the late 1960s talk about, wrote a book called Servant Leadership. Not a Christian, you know, a prophetic, speaking into a very tumultuous time. The, the late 1960s reminds me of the, the last couple of years, you know, mm. and saying, like, what the world needs is natural servants who learn to lead, not leaders who learn to serve, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of like Jesus CEO, Ken Blanchard stuff where you can teach servanthood as a tactic. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So so to be, to be a sort of successful leader, you need to convince people that you're there to serve them. Well, guys, that's, that's demagoguery. Mm. So you're, if, if you, if, if it's a, if it's a trick that you're playing on people, like if it's a tactic, then that's the opposite of servitude actually that that becomes deception you know Mm. i i'm 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 overstating it but um but you know the idea of like natural servants that learn to lead we'd much rather have that greenleaf said we'd, we'd much rather have that and i think that's that's fundamental to the underground too um and 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 us becoming like us as not just staff, but as microchurch leaders, as elders, all that stuff being like servants at our core first, and then also creating a, a, a stru- infrastructure which is which is a service platform. It's essentially it's it's servanthood built in. It 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 can't not be servanthood. Like what drives it is to serve this group of people. You know. Um, so there are many things like that, but I, that's a, that's a great example of like a profound unlearning that we yeah. had to do, you Yeah.
1: Know. Yeah.
2: That idea of servant leadership. I remember I had a mentor
1: of mine at 23 years old. He looked at me, he said, you've heard servant leadership. Jair, I want you to wrestle this week with, is it better to be a leader who serves or a servant who leads? And he's like, it's not nuanced, but he's like, your answer will change the trajectory of your life. And yeah. uh, so I would, I would totally resonate with what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, going deeper with that, you said, per, um, one of the things you wrote was perhaps we see so little engagement in America, in the American church, because we have not offered Christians an end that is accessible to them. Um, you talk in, in a couple of your books about the ecclesial minimum. Unpack the ecclesial minimum and even why that question of, even on your grant application, I think is, yeah, how is this about these three things? And if not, we can't say yes to it. Uh, unpack those three for us here. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean in business terms it would be like the minimum viable product, you know, or like in Seth Godin's terms, you have to ship. So you you can you can tweak a product all day long, but you got to figure out what is its what is it in its essence and how quickly can we ship it? So if you care about something like church planting, so you let's just say you think the church is a good thing and having more of them would be good for the world, you know. Uh, more of them in more places would be good for the world. Then the question is, okay, what is it actually like? Like in its, in its essence at its core, I actually, guys, I think it's the most profound question we can ask in the 21st century. Like what is the church? Because we, we've assumed so much about it. We actually, we, we, for the last 15 years, we just went crazy on church planning, but we didn't ask the core question. What are we planting? (laughs) You know what I mean? We just went out and like replicated what we had, which is already behind in, in many ways to, to, keep up with the context, you know? So I think asking that sort of minimum viable product or that irreducible minimum, or what we've called the ecclesial minimum, like what is the church where if you stripped everything away and you were only left with this, you'd still have to admit, yeah, that's a church, Mm. you know? And I don't know what it would be for you, but everybody has a minimum. I mean, even if it's nine marks or 12 (laughs) things or seven sacraments or whatever your thing is, there's a number like it's not as big as we think. It's not as complex as we think that minimum thing. Now, it's not to say you could add to it and make it make it, you know, many other things or have many other parts. But what is it? So for us, it came to those three things that sort of up in and out the, you know, the vertical and the horizontal, like lordship of Jesus, worship of God. That's one you know community with other people who who know Jesus or committed to that same lordship and then mission somehow expanding the boundaries of the kingdom um to the poor to the lost that when those three things are happening at a place and time with a group of people i think you're looking at the church that was that would be our argument now again what what is it for you i don't know but whatever it is whatever you settle on that ecclesial minimum you settle on that's what you should plant mhm that's what you should replicate or multiply. And that doesn't cost $500,000 to do one, to plant one. And, and the end result being what a, a number I saw, a million, it costs a million dollars in the U S to baptize one person. Wow. That's, wow. that's what the, that's, that's our, that's our ratio. <laughs> so, Man. so that, that approach or that model is very expensive Because it's so complex and it's all tied up. You guys know this. It's all tied up in the kind of clergy class thing where, you know, you went to seminary, you got your MDiv and and you you sort of you took your place among the erudite, you know, among the sort of cultural elite. Well, those days are gone. I mean, I mean, being a pastor with an MDiv doesn't get you any credibility at the Rotary Club or something like that anymore. Like nobody cares. So and, and also the way that the church is working and functioning in the world. It's just not now. I'm, I'm a I'm an intellectual. I'm I'm all for theological education. Love it. You know, believe in it. Uh, but as a as a qualification to do ministry or plant churches, that's not not necessary at all, especially when you think of the church as this simpler thing, this essential mm-hmm. thing, you know,
1: mm-hmm. how about the, and, and we're all with you. I mean, we inward, outward, upward, I mean, yeah, worship we're, community, uh, community mission. We're with yeah. you on that. Um, what do we, what would you want to say to the pastor? That's like, I think we have like 39 things instead of three, we've got way too many. And, uh, and, and I would Maybe even unpack the analogy of the conquered jet. I'd love for you to just kind of talk a little bit about that, and like, how do we get to a point where we just like can't pull out anymore? Uh, What what would you want to tell to the pastor who's actually built a conquered jet church? And doesn't want to do it anymore.
2: (laughs) Well, you're referring to what's called the sunk cost fallacy or sunk cost bias. You know, Um, you know. There's also something called endowment theory. This is what my wife has when she's trying to sell an old dryer or something, and she thinks this dryer is worth a lot. You know, (laughs) someone should pay two hundred dollars for this. And it's like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure you can get a new dryer for three hundred dollars. So that's no one's going to buy our old rickety rusty dryer, you know, but it's ours and, and, and it's been very useful to us. And because we own it and because we have history with it, we overvalue Mm. it. That's, that's what happens. That's the endowment effect that actually we overestimate the value of thing that's in our possession. Um, and the sunk cost bias, of course, you know, the, the, it's just the idea that once we well, this happened to my son. I'm sorry to throw my my family under the bus here, but he bought this motorcycle. He keeps wrecking it, and so like the the you know front ends broken, the the headlights fell off, the all this stuff, and he, and he can't really he keeps putting money into trying to keep it running and he keeps dumping so much money. So he's put triple the, the value of the bike into it over and over again. And he just can't stop because I've already put so much money in that. I feel like I've got to keep going with this thing. You know, uh, this is, this is what you call behavioral economics, you know, we, you know, the, the, the sort of predictably irrational, that, that extraordinary book where we we're not being rational anymore. We're not thinking actually the best thing to do is just stop, spending money on this bike, you know, uh, but, but it feels like we've already spent so much money that to stop would be foolish or a waste, but actually, no, you, you have to stop. You need to stop. And yeah, I'm sure for some of our systems we, we know they don't work. We don't even really like them anymore, but God, I put my whole life into this, or I'm, I'm 30 years into the ministry now and I don't know what else to do. It just feels really hard to just turn back or turn away from them. Mm. I don't know what I would say mm. to people in that category, except you know, see reason. I don't know. Mm. Save yourself there. You know. uh, and 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 I suppose there is there is a kind of of liberation or, or, or a kind of joy that comes from being liberated. And you won't really know that until you just let go. Mm. And, and maybe, maybe all spiritual disciplines are somehow powered by surrender, Mm. you know? So, so it's okay. Just let go. You know, um, I, 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 I've been telling a story recently of, of, um, a fire that took place in 1949, a place called man Gulch. Montana and it's one of these kind of explosive sweeping fires that came to this canyon. And so they had to drop in these um 23 I think elite firefighters. It's 1949 so they parachute in. They call them smoke jumpers. And you know they have all these kind of tools on their back, axes and shovels and stuff in these packs. But the 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 fire these kinds of fires move so fast. They're so vicious uh that sometimes they can just get on you. Um something like they move at something like eleven feet per second. Wow. You can imagine that. Um and so in this particular this is a famous fire. And in this this particular fire, the 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 foreman of the crew The smoke jumpers, a guy called Wagner Dodge, which is an amazing fireman (laughs) name. Uh, He 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 gave the order to all the smoke jumpers to drop their tools and run, to to run for your life, basically run up this ravine to escape this this oncoming fire, like it was too close. And uh, three, I think three or four of them obeyed the order and dropped their tools and survived. The rest of them would not put down their tools, and the fire consumed them. Mm. They died. Now, this became important, because actually this happened like three or four more times in kind of the history of firefighting, these kind of fires, where people are given an order to drop their tools. Won't. They just Mm. won't. Like psychologically, they can't for some reason. Uh, and this, this has become of interest to social scientists because it's a question of why, why we can't drop our tools. Mm. Like why even, even at a threat of death, we can't put them down mm. for some reason. Mm. And of course that idea of dropping your tools is, is proxy for unlearning what you guys brought up earlier. It's a, it's a, it's an issue of like, we just, we're too psychologically invested mm. in it. Their sunk cost is so high for us that we don't even know why. Like mm. there was a guy called Quentin Rhodes in 1994 that was in a similar fire in Colorado. And he actually ran for like 900 feet with his chainsaw in his hand and finally was like, what am I doing? You know? mm. And then and he thought in his head, I need to put this down. But he kept thinking the whole time, I, sh- I, I, I don't want to. I can't. And he, he, as he's running for his life, he was thinking. This was in the, this was in the sort of victim incident report. As he was running for his life, he kept thinking, "I need to find a safe place to put this. I need to <laughs> um, find a safe place to put this." They found people in that fire with chainsaws melted, burned into their dead hands. Mm. You know, they just couldn't let go, you know? And man, if that is not, if that is not a metaphor for people in ministry, long-term ministry, I don't know what is because, which it's just hard to lay it down. Even when you know that you're supposed to, that you have to, that, that the thing may not survive if you don't, um, there's, there's, there's this, a psychological barrier to doing it. But, you know, I I suppose what I'm saying is that you can, (laughs) There's a kind of happiness or joy or life or, you know, like newness, actually, that can come upon your, your calling when you find yourself standing there without those tools anymore, kind of naked and thinking, OK, who am I now without my chainsaw or without my axe or whatever? Well, you know, you are. You're you're a son or daughter of God. You're a called person. You know, you're a you're a you're a priest in, 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 the, in the, this royal priesthood uh which is which is all you ever were that mattered anyway you know
1: stories, like NASA pulling the plug on stuff. I mean, I think of Canoeing the Mountains, Todd Bolsinger's book, right? We know canoeing, we got to leave it behind because you can't canoe mountains. And the Concord Jet story of like jumping so much money that you mentioned in in your book when you talked about the Concord Jet uh, story that even though it was just years and years of, we know this is losing money, but we're a point of no return. At some point, there were engineers that said, we need to stop this. There's some courageous people within the system of Concord that said, no more, we're done. And, uh, and I think if Doug and I are hearing you right, it's saying we need to be those kinds of people that are dropping chainsaws and going to the bosses and saying, the Concord jet, like, no more. We've got to cut uh, this. So how, how would we know, Brian, the, I mean, of course we need wisdom, but how would we know what we keep and what we don't, right? So Because there are some helpful tools you know, for, for example, your three ecclesial minimum uh, elements are like, great, those should not be abandoned, but other tools should be. So how might we navigate with wisdom of knowing, you know, the the firefighters didn't drop their shoes either. They still ran with shoes and clothes on, right? Right. But they dropped the heavy tool. So how would we know the balance between what's an ax or a chainsaw
2: and what are our shoes as we're, as we're running? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, my answer to that question is we have to get back to being missionaries, you know, missionary people. Mm-hmm. You know, what drives the missionary is, you know, well, it's twofold, isn't it? It's intimacy with God. So, like, a missionary life is hard. You know, you don't make any money and nobody likes you. And, you know, you're not, you're sort of, it's just like a lot of suffering. And, So what, what drives the missionary person is this deep intimacy and connection with God. Like I'm doing what he's asked me to do. And that's, man, you can't put a price on that, Mm -hmm. like that, that sense of destiny or significance or purpose that only can come from Mm -hmm. the father, you know, but the other thing is the people you're called to, like, what do they need? Mm -hmm. What would serve them? What would reach them? What would bless them? What would communicate or bear witness to the kingdom in their life, and and you kind of do anything to do that to get there. Mm. You know, it's it's in in missionary terms, it's contextualization. It's like how do I how do I make the gospel accessible? How do I make the the goods of the kingdom, the sacramental life of the people of God, accessible to these people who don't know Jesus or who are far from Him, or who need who or who suffering great need. Um that's what matters, you know, that's, that's what drives you. So then you think, okay, well, does this tool help me do that? You know, <laughs> does this building or this way of doing finances or these, this, these staff roles or whatever, if they don't help us do that, then. Okay. Like what, why are we hanging on to them? Mm-hmm. I mean, get, getting back to that sort of apostolic, um, you know, focus. Uh, that's what, should drive a kingdom minded person. It's the kind of coming of the kingdom, you know, the, the Lord's prayer, um, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man, I was just looking, I was just thinking about, um, Mark, is it Mark seven today where Jesus says, um, what is it? He's, 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 he's given it to the Pharisees, you know? And he says, "You have you've let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions." And those two images pop up in my head. You're know, like letting go and holding on, mm. like the tool thing, right? It's like you 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 let go of the commands of God, and you hold on to human traditions. Mm. And and then he's sort of like snarky, you know. He says, "You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God, so you can observe observe your own traditions," you know. So it's like, look, we're holding on to certain things and we're letting go of certain things, but hold on to the right things and let go of the right things. You know, Mm. the, the, the tools, the traditions, I know they mean something to us, but, but it's okay to let go of them and hold fast to the, to the commission, to the calling that we've received, Mm. you know? Mm. And, 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 isn't it, isn't, isn't that really, isn't that really what change management is what you let go of and what you hold on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually the people aren't so much afraid of change as they are afraid of loss. Mm-hmm. You know, the the problem people have with change is, is, is not, they think it's change like on the surface, but actually it's about feeling like I'm losing something. I'm, I, I don't want to lose Betsy, my favorite chainsaw, you know? <laughs> um, but actually what, what you stand to lose is much greater in this, you know, Jesus's case, he's saying the commands of God, you know, like you, you, you held on to something, but, but you let go of the more important thing.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Brian, I think that's really helpful. Um, so I think the, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is like, what, what is, what is the mindset of a firefighter who listens to that command to let go and run and does that like, what are those, like, how does he situate or how does she situate herself in a position to just be ready to drop and run at any given moment?
2: I mean, what do you think? I I don't know. I, I To me, it's just that that surrendered life like we don't we're not attached you know like the it it feels like some sort of ancient commitment that the almost monastic you know where we where we we don't allow ourselves to be attached mm. to worldly things you mm. know and you know in 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 our in our rush for you know, in, in the, in the late nineties and early aughts in our rush to be culturally relevant, you know, to be kind of cool or whatever. Um, we, we may have forsaken just kind of holiness, you know, the, the desire to be able to be in the presence of God without guilt, you know, mm. um, and it, it ho- holiness and, and, and I mean, you know my understanding of kind of those those deep monastic sort of disciplines or whatever ha- has a lot to do with with attachment, you know, and not loving the world so much, you know mm. and not even loving your life more than you love the kingdom mm. and the hope of the kingdom. and And I think as a missionary person, the people he sent you to, mm. like you would you would die, essentially. For those yeah. people mm-hmm. and for him who called you, you know, mm-hmm. what is, is it, I think it's Jürgen Moltmann that, that says, you know, before Jesus, like, Jesus doesn't just die on a cross for us. He dies on a cross for his father, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like he first dies for the father because he asked him to. know that's what happens in gethsemane Mm. it's it's a it's an agreement between the two of them you know so yes he dies for the world yes he dies for us and in that suffering we're we're free you know and it Mm. becomes a model really for engagement Mm. in the world Mm. not just incarnation but crucifixion is a model for engagement right Mm. cruciformity you know that but he dies for the father for, before he dies for the people, you know, and, and same with us. It's like to, to look upon the face of God as, as best we can and to be so fascinated, so enraptured, so in love, actually, that ah, the other things don't matter. They don't matter.
1: Mm, I love that. yeah, it reminds me one of the greatest American missionary movements with the Moravians, which is just about forty five minutes north of us in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, Nicholas Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, which is also an amazing name. Good, uh, his, his, uh, John Tyson and I did a tour of the the original Moravian uh, you know, enclave there, which is fascinating. But, you know, one of the greatest Zinzendorf quotes for me is he said, Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten' wow <laughs> you know we talk about cruciformity right <laughs> like you know preach the gospel die be forgotten and yet uh yet we still remember him mm. today mm. because that's how he lived of a forgotten life yet we can't mm. forget someone who lives in that forgot forgetting forgotten state so uh anyway yeah so as we as we talk about mission of mis- mission of course is the sharp tip of the arrow and it's essential in all of this and i love how you don't allow any micro church to start without mission being the driving, uh, area, not just a huddle and cuddle affinity group. But, um, you know, we've been uh, around mission oriented leaders. I coach a lot of them. A lot of them are great practitioners, but I see an alarming amount of kingdom practitioners with good hearts, but they're exhausted and burned out, almost addicted to adrenaline. So what are some of the practices that you do that keep you from burning out? What healthy practices do you cultivate for a flourishing with God life? Knowing it's not perfection, but how are you still in the game after
2: all these years? When- <laughs> you're assuming a lot there. Right? You're <laughs> assuming that I'm I'm not burning out. Uh, <laughs> ah, practices, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm listening. You know to the to the to the the sort of voices in the church saying you know. To, to care for our soul and Sabbath and, you know, prioritize you know rest, you know, recreation, you know, actually doing things that, that bring life to you and that sort of thing. But but I but I also think I also think it, it is partly how we view it. I mean fundamentally how we view the work we're called to do and you know that whole kind of goofy bumper sticker saying, you know, if you find something you love, you never work a day in your life, you know. I do think ministry can be like that. Even when you're, even when you're in the midst of kind of a hard time or suffering, you still feel like I love this. You know, I love, I, I, I love what I'm called to do and the people that I'm called to. And so, you know, to me, burnout is probably more related to an inner reality than an, than an externalized reality so when we just try to sort of adjust things like our calendar or our schedule you know we 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 have a policy we, we send everyone on a sabbatical every seven years and um, you know've I've seen I've sent and supervised plenty of people that go on sabbaticals and they come back and their their are rested but their souls aren't like they're still cooked you know they're still There's nothing left in the tank like that did not get replenished or they're still fragile. You know, they're like on a hair's trigger again, Um, because, you know, you can rest, you can have those kind of rhythms. But if but if the way you see what you do uh, is not something that's life giving, it's it's kind of like a cognitive uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, commitment uh, it's, it's a worldview, I guess. Um, and part of it is just that, that I I would say for me, part of it is the reason why I'm still in the game is because I knew suffering was going to be part of it. Like you, Mm -hmm. you, you you sort of brace yourself, you steal yourself for that. And you don't, you don't feel hurt or, or offended by God when it happens. You don't think something has gone wrong you know, when, when the wheels come off, you think, well, you know, here we are, you know, I, what is it, is it acts 13 where Paul comes back through, I think Lystra and Tyree. And he, it's almost like he forgot to appoint leaders. So, and the first way through So he's like, Oh yeah, shoot. I need to, so he comes back through and he, and he lays hands and they, it's, I think it's the, the first and only time we have it. We have them kind of ordaining elders. Um, and, All he says in that sort of ordination ceremony, so to speak, there is it takes many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So that's that's what it means to be ordained as an elder. It's just saying, listen, guys, it's not going to be glory. You know, if you you want to be a leader in the church, it's not going to be about glory. It's going to be about hardships because Mm -hmm. that's how the kingdom comes. Blood, sweat and tears, you know, Mm and And I think for me, that that maybe is a kind of secret, an inner secret that that I have a good, strong theology of suffering. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt me. and it doesn't mean it doesn't take the my breath away uh, when it when it happens, uh, and I don't need time and space to recover from being winded. But I do think i'm I'm protected and preserved to some degree because, you know, I can almost hear the voice of God saying, what did you think was going to happen? You know, What did you think I called you into? As Paul on the Damascus road, you know, or Ananias, him saying, don't worry, Ananias. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, what a great, what a great job offer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> but you know, this and what does Paul end up saying? He says, I, I want to know Christ and the fellowship and his suffering, so somehow to attain his resurrection. Like, man, this is this is like the secret of mm. intimacy, actually, with mm. him. Mm. Is it's hard. This life is hard, but but it's totally worth it. Totally worth it.
1: Mm. Brian, this has been uh, a conversation that we knew would be full and we knew would go quickly and would be rich. So thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for your teaching, your writing, your, and just modeling what a missionary mindset looks like and jet-setting around the world and just saying, God, what's next? And uh, that's great. So thanks for this conversation. We really appreciate it. Good talking to you guys. <laughs> you
0: too, Brian. I thoroughly enjoy that conversation with Brian. Yes, I agree with you fully. So, dude, what a smart guy. (laughs) I'm just trying to keep up. It's like he's quoting books and all kinds. I'm like, this guy is extremely well read. But even beyond that, I just get the sense of uh, it was so nice to talk to a pioneer one who's been thinking through the stuff that you and I have been thinking through for quite a few years too but just is a little it seems like he's a little further down the road um yeah so much so much good stuff so what what things jumped off the page for you JR
1: Well, I think three Ps come to mind when I think about um, Brian in this interview. He was prophetic, Mm -hmm. right? There were some things that made us uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. probably made our listeners uncomfortable, but he was also pastoral of bringing us back to the heart of God and and to the ways of God. But he was also practical. You know, he is a practitioner and that's what I love. He does not uh, talk from some ivory tower of theory. It's very practical. I mean, he's lived in intentional community for 20 years. Uh, He has never just lived his family. Like he always, has people living with him uh in the midst of this he he lives and journeys with his team so i, I think those three p's stick out to me but you know talking about the conquered jet story and then he told an even better story mm-hmm. about the man gulch uh my, the, the fire out west in 1949 with wagner dodge like i wagner love that name dodge. wagner dodge this, that sounds like i don't know like maybe that's a you know Mia, I love potential band names like the Wagner Dodge Band. Like that would be sweet. But, <laughs> but anyway, just the idea of like dropping your tools and the idea of like just melted chainsaw metal in the hands of dead bones. Mm-hmm. Like, man, that, that image is going to stick with me, uh, which certainly makes me wonder like, man, like. What what chainsaws do I have to let go off in the yeah. midst of this? So, um, but I, you talked a lot about change theory. You know, the idea of people don't fear change; they fear loss. Yeah, and that that I think can be really helpful for us as pastors in a season where there's been so much loss. And to say, if we call people to change, we need to help cast a clearer picture. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that we're acknowledging and allowing people to grieve what could be lost or what will be lost in the midst of the change. Hmm. So, Doug, what about you? What stuck
0: out to you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the, the whole thing. But <laughs> if, I, if I had, if I had to, to just, I think the thing that really resonated with me, uh, just as I'm re-repairing or preparing for sabbatical this summer is the statement where he said, burnout is more inner than outer. Yeah. That stung a bit. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to have to sit with that a little bit more. But even just recognizing the importance of, uh, I, I think he's right in that, uh, h- how do how do we kind of get our mindset around suffering and even just expecting that, but also, uh, yeah, like what does it look like to keep developing the intimacy with God? And I, I wonder too, if, if um, my sense is missionaries, people with missionary mindset, burnout looks a little different than... Than people who are pastoring congregations that are, that are, um, a little bit more, um, traditional or sort of the yeah. the model of church that many of us were, you know, brought up, raised in pastor now brought up in. And I just, so just even just think about how burnout probably looks really differently for, um, our wiring and our giftedness. And so pastors may feel a little different prophets, apostles, different things like that. So that that was really interesting. Um, yeah, and just really... And, and I think too, even just the the end part of our conversation about how you yeah. know, all of us are, are you know, like we should expect a moral failure in all of our lives. And that's kind mm-hmm. of like a... I don't want to hear that. Um, but it's hard to get away from scripture and not see the moral failings of the people <laughs> over all the pages of scripture. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I think... That, Just sitting with that today uh, or, you know, for the next few days, probably just in terms of, uh, I think one of the most important things is like, who are the people in my life that know me deeply? enough that can, that can help me sort of sniff that out and recognize when sin is at the door. So Mm -hmm. yeah, those are the things that I was really, and yeah, the Mangolds. I mean, dude, Wagner Dodge. That is like, (laughs) if I had another kid, it'd be Wagner Dodge Moisture. Like I'm going to say that right now. Uh, I love that name. That is like the coolest name in the world. Doug, you have Complete permission
1: okay. at any point, recording in the future, to call me Wagner Dodge.
0: Okay. <laughs> yes. yeah.
1: you're, you're more than welcome. If you say Wagner, what do you got? Like well, I'm, I'll, I'll totally respond to uh, Wagner, Mr. Dodge, anything. Mr. So, Dodge. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of moral failing, like you know, we sort of see that as code word for you know, like something terrible, embezzlement, you know, sexual affair. Um, but isn't all sin moral failing yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, he really helped me i that I, was a question I had never fully asked before on that language. Uh, oh, he had a moral failing failure. well, I have moral failures every day mm. like that was a fascinating that yeah. you know, was really helpful for me yeah. But I think what was helpful, you know just th- his view of ecclesiology is gonna be very different and maybe radical uh for some of us uh as we as we think about this, but you know, I really appreciated you know in the book, and I'll just do a quick quote from the book that we didn't have time to ask him about. um, But he said this in his book, Underground Church. He said, I often ask a group of pastors, if you had to decide today to have either a church of a 1000 people who come together on Sunday, but never more than 100 in active mission in the world or a church of a thousand on active mission, but never more than 100 in the same room at the same time, which would you choose? And he said, sadly, even though most of us admit that the latter is better for the kingdom, many still choose the former. Until this changes in the hearts of our leaders, I'm sure we will have neither the courage nor the will to make the necessary changes. But if we continue to forge ahead and make the changes, I'm also confident that God will give us both the courage and the will. Man, I think that's that's a lot of what he's talking about, that putting down a big room full of people is one of our chainsaws, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for many pastors. But I love that he talked about ecclesiology. How did he stay in the game? He had a missionary mindset. Mm-hmm. Surrender. He kept using the word surrender. And he talked about having a a theology of suffering, something mm-hmm. that you and I have talked about, something that's very important, something I artic- articulated in the, the book I wrote called fail, but the idea of expect suffering and, um, you talk about acts 13 and the hardship. That was great. But I want to read again, just briefly, if I could, Doug, uh, the Mark seven verse that he talked about, yeah, please you No, know? And that's, that's chainsaw stuff, right? I mean, he talked about, he said, having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human tradition. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human tradition. Whoa. Yeah, that's whew, yikes. You know, that's there's a lot there. What do we take up? What do we hold fast to? And what do we let go of? Yeah. Um, I won't think about that verse and change theory the same again. The kingdom of God is all about change
0: theory. Yeah. That's, that's what this is about. Yeah. So Wagner um, Dodge will pop right into your head, dude. Seriously, but that's where I think it really comes back to. I think to multiple. Multiple conversations we've had, but specifically Sky Jatani, just that question, like, what is church? Like, we are in a season where as pastors, we are invited into asking that question again and discovering afresh and anew uh, what that is. And and I think that that's such, it can be terrifying. And or it can be exhilarating. And I think maybe a little bit of both is probably a good thing for us as pastors, just to 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 come back to it. like what are these minimum pieces? Like, where do we find ourselves just saying, Yes, Lord, this is like if this is what you're calling us to, man, I'm in. Like I'm in, whatever that would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, my brother calls
1: that uh terracitement or being terasited. He's <laughs> uh, just so much of our involvement in the kingdom is being terracited That's good. Uh, that there's, there's a little bit of fear of what is required of me, but there's so much excitement of anticipation. It's a beautiful portmanteau, two mm. words becoming one uh, on that. So let's leave people with questions, resources, and then we'll send people out here. Uh, so a couple of questions, Doug, that you and I talked about just as we were listening to Brian speak. Number one, what are the tools that are the hardest for us to let go? Uh, what are our chainsaws <laughs> that we need to let go of? And then number two, what is your ecclesial minimum? I know Brian talked about Worship, community, and mission, but in reality, not just the what's the right answer for the test, but in your life, in your church, in your context, what is your ecclesial minimum in reality? So we want to encourage you to wrestle with those two questions. Doug, what would be some good resources that we can yeah. recommend? Uh,
0: two of his books, Microchurches and Underground Church, fantastic reads. Uh, and and again, I appreciate the way that Brian even talked about Tampa Underground, not as like this is the model that works, but This is Netscape now, you know, this is Navigator. This, this is something that, that we hope is built upon. And so even checking out the website, Tampa I think would just be a good opportunity. If you want to kind of see what is happening and what's going on there, I think that would be a great resource as well. Yeah. Well, pastors, Listeners, we're so grateful for you. We want to send you out with with
1: this as a final charge, just as we are uh, near the end of 2020. Uh, But uh, as you go, we bless you and we thank God for you. But We also want to encourage you, just as Brian said, that may you go with a missionary mindset, not as spectators, but as participants wanting to involve other participants in God's kingdom. May you surrender. May you drop your chainsaws. And may you focus your life on the ecclesial minimum of worship, community, and mission. May you embrace the theology of suffering. May we listen to Paul's words in Acts 13 that we would expect suffering. And more than all of that, even in the midst of our suffering, would we experience joy in the midst of it all. God bless and bless God.